from the gospel. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. This first verse in our gospel reading this morning has always kind of bothered me, if I'm being honest, because it's difficult for me to how, to how to understand how it's actually true, at least the first clause of not being able to serve two masters. Because when you stop and think about it, there's a certain sense in which we do this all the time. We seek our living, our needs, our pleasures, our dependence from multiple sources. And in the Christian life, it seems like we really do serve, or at least try to serve, two masters. We do rely upon God and mammon. I think this is a good example of something that perhaps gets lost in translation. The underlying Greek words here are doulos and kurios, which perhaps might be better, better rendered as a slave cannot have two owners. You can either be a slave of God or slave of mammon. This translation perhaps is a little bit more intense, but I think it gets better, more accurately describes what Jesus is getting at. So our Lord here is presenting us with two options for how we can order our lives that are by definition opposed to each other. It's not possible for both to be true. You're either a slave of God or you're a slave of mammon. Now this is kind of scary to me because if this is the case, and if I'm honest, I think I might be forced to say that I'm a slave to mammon. And mammon refers here not only to money or wealth, but also one's possessions, and thus how we order and direct our lives. When we stop and think about it, so much of our lives revolve around mammon, acquiring it, maintaining it, thinking about all that we can do once we have it, attaching our status and worth to it, and also, oftentimes, allowing ourselves to neglect others in our abundance of it. This is perhaps one of our biggest blind spots as affluent people. Now, I've said this before many times, so if you'll permit me, I think it bears repeating. The New Testament teaching on wealth is that it is not intrinsically evil, but everyone needs to be careful. And the gospel is presented as one of the primary bar barriers to discipleship. So the relationship in the Bible between the kingdom and, ma and mammon is presented as a zero-sum game. That is, the more that you hold on to mammon, the less you will be able to hold on to the kingdom. And it's out of this then that the Bible speaks of the practice of tithing, in which we are called to be sacrificial and generous, which you've also heard me say before on numerous occasions. Sacrificial in the sense that we should feel it, meaning it should hurt some, and generous in a sort of non-calculating way, sort of liberal generosity. The principal concern of tithing is not that, oh, the church needs your money, but rather the way in which tithing as an ongoing spiritual practice helps us in regard to our Lord's teaching here, in terms of properly ordering our lives around the kingdom. We have to remember that in tithing, we're not simply paying the God tax, as it were. Rather, practicing sacrifice and generosity with our tithes then touches the whole relationship with our wealth. And as we push ourselves to let go with our tithe, we learn to let go of our 
possessions and our wealth in general, which enables us then to be able to better hold on to the kingdom. And this is why, again, as I said before, I don't like the strict 10% rule. Most of the time I find that I say that, though, and people think, okay, yeah, I'm one of those ones that can go under 10%, but most of the time I mean it the other way. Because for many people, giving 10% does not sufficiently push them past that threshold into the sort of generosity and sacrifice that then begins to reorient your relationship with your wealth. And this is why many, if being honest, myself included, we can practice this 10% rule of giving for a long period of time and never really be changed by it. We can continue to hold on to this attitude, I've paid my dues, I've paid my God tax, and now the rest is for me to use as I would like. If this is you, then the wisdom of the church would be to say that your almsgiving needs to increase. Now, in what remains in this passage, Jesus will address what appears to be the underlying or root issue with the pursuit of mammon. Because we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, why is it? Why are we so obsessed with it? Why is it that I live my life oriented in this way around the acquisition and the maintenance of wealth? Even the basic things that Jesus speaks of, like food, drink, clothing, why do we pursue them? And it seems like the underlying issue here is value and security. It's what makes us believe that we are something, that we have worth, and it's what makes us believe that we will be okay. It's what makes us safe. And there's a certain underlying anxiety here that I think we all know about, and I believe that it's the fear of what will happen if we don't have these things. That's what Jesus is going after here. It's as though he's saying, look, okay, you're pursuing all of these things, but even if you get them, then what are you going to do? Is not life more than food? That is, life can't be reduced even to the basic necessities and the basic needs, let alone abundance. And I think the experience of humanity demonstrates this, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience as well. And that is that even when you get the mammon that you are pursuing, you realize that you're still not happy. It didn't come through on its promise. The anxiety which caused us to pursue it has now, once we've obtained it, simply transformed itself into a new anxiety. The anxiety of the fear of losing it. Or perhaps the anxiety of the realization that it didn't give us the happiness that we thought that it would. So now, what do we do? And Jesus' point here, I think, with regard to this anxiety is twofold. Which of you being anxious, he says, can add a single hour to the span of his life? That is, anxiety is not productive. It literally has no pragmatic value. It has no effect, that is, on the outcome. These things are all outside of our control, so what benefit is there to worry? If anything, the continued worrying over these things, which are out of our control, only takes the pain or the anxiety and amplifies it more. And then the second point that Jesus makes here is that this anxiety is only something that can be remedied by the pursuit of the kingdom of God. So not only does the anxiety have zero practical value, 
But as mentioned, even when you obtain it, you still have anxiety. Mammon is fickle in this sense. So this anxiety, this one which causes us to pursue wealth according to our Lord, is an anxiety that can only be remedied by faith. But it's not faith of the kind of intellectual sort, we might say. I don't think that there's any amount of right doctrine that will take away our anxiety. Rather, it is faith in the sense of trust, a sort of calm confidence, that if we remain faithful, God will provide. The simple trust that if we obey Christ, and if we seek him, he will act on our behalf. I think in anxious times we need to take stock of what is. That is, we have seen the goodwill of the Father towards us in his Son. We are of more value than the lilies and the sparrows. And it's the Father's goodwill and intention to give us the kingdom with all of its benefits. Now, having said that, it's sometimes hard, I think, to recognize that God's provision in this sense that we're talking about here does not always mean the material changes to our circumstances that we might hope for. I've said this before, but many Christians have or are passing through seasons of difficulty in which we might feel like the kingdom and its benefits are not, by any means, being given to us. I kind of get the sense that even many here at our small mission of St. Thomas, myself included, find ourselves in somewhat difficult, somewhat anxious times. And for me, as I reflect on my own present situation, I think that God is calling us to something in these challenging times. Now, just because you arrive at this realization, that doesn't mean that you're always going to feel it. We're going to have emotional lows in which we, in which we question all of it, in which we, as it says in Job, we um, question God or we charge God foolishly. But that's completely normal. And if that's you and you find yourself doubting God or whatever it might be, you just have to know that that's normal. And God sees it and he understands. But I think objectively what God is calling us to in these anxious times during difficult seasons that we might have and forgive me if it sounds a bit simple, but I really think what he's calling us to is an increase in faith, or perhaps a sort of transformation of our faith. From a faith that was somewhat circumstantial, let's say, dependent on how things were around us, and he's taking that faith and he's changing it, or he's growing it into a faith that recognizes that sometimes the cup doesn't pass from us, but sometimes we must drink it. And we see this in the witness of the saints in the Bible, as well as the witness of the saints throughout the church's history, that they did not have a view of life in which difficulties and struggles meant that they somehow found themselves outside of God's providential care. I don't know about you, but that tends to be my gut reaction. But on the contrary, they had a faith which viewed trials, tribulations, and struggles as part of a larger story, as part of a larger working out of God's providential plan in their lives. And in that sense, they could see it, they could accept it, and they could drink the cup that was given to them. 
This is the kind of faith that recognizes that it's the presence of God with us in the circumstances and not the circumstances themselves that matters. Our safety can only be found in God's providence and presence. And therefore, even if we have to pass through the worst of trials, there's nothing to fear. This is the sort of faith that recognizes that, yes, even though each day carries with it sufficient evil, the grace of God is still present. And it's the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that we can get through the evils of the day. So as our Lord says, if we seek first the kingdom and righteousness, persevering in our faith, then all these things will be added unto us. So therefore, we don't need to worry. Nothing can take us out of God's providence, and he will always provide what we need to make it through. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.